Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. I am thrilled to have you here today for our first book club episode. We are reading Deluxe. How Luxury Lost Its Luster by Dana Thomas. It is a hard-hitting, behind-the-scenes look at luxury fashion and that entire industry as we know it today, the history behind it, the creative directors, the collections that really made a difference, why psychologically we feel pressured to purchase certain things, what does it mean to be an it bag. It was an incredible, incredible book, and I'm thrilled to have you here today for our discussion with Megan McSheary of Activism. I will go ahead and say, because it's the first book club episode, it's come to my attention that if we are choosing nonfiction books for the book club picks of Eco Chic every month, then we don't really have to worry about spoilers. You will certainly get more out of these episodes if you've read the book, but you definitely don't have to to enjoy the episode and enjoy the conversation because we do talk a lot about fashion and luxury fashion as a whole and these more philosophical questions that came to us as we were reading. And I also think that a lot of the discussion is very centered around things that we are already familiar with as regular consumers. We talk about iconic purses, handbags, designers, luxury labels, things like that. Things that as a middle market consumer you're aware of in the pop culture space and in celebrities and in the luxury marketplace, even if you're not deeply aware of them. So again, if you read the book, I certainly think that you'll get a lot more out of this conversation, but if you didn't read the book, you're still going to really, really enjoy it because Megan and I have a really awesome, thought-provoking, stream-of-consciousness type conversation, which was really the goal. We sat down to have a conversation that had no outline. There were no pre-written questions. We just sat down with our thoughts and said, what'd you think of this chapter? What'd you think of that chapter? It flowed so naturally, so well. And I'm really, really excited about that. A little part of me was nervous to even start a new segment on the show because I was like, how is this going to run? A book club is not something that I feel comfortable writing questions for necessarily because so much of my conversations are free-flowing anyway. So it just felt really good to have this chat with her. And Megan is someone who I have admired for a really, really long time. I've followed her on my personal account for probably at least three years now. I love her content. And it's been incredible to be able to connect with her recently, and we 
just had a moment where we felt like we had known each other forever. So I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to chat with her in such a very casual format. I left the audio pretty raw. There's no heavy editing again because that's the stream of consciousness type conversation that we were having. And I think it really lends to a lot of the discussion points that we bring up. So I think you're going to really enjoy it. It's a different style of episode, but one that I think makes a lot of sense for this content. And I also know that it's really easy to want to be a better reader. And I am someone who makes the New Year's resolution every single year that I'm going to read more. I'm going to add another book to my book goal list of the year. And it's really nice to be able to have a little bit of pressure of a discussion to really actively read. I'm someone who writes all over my books. I highlight my books. I know it's a little sacrilegious, so I'm sorry if that offends anyone, but I love to be an active reader and to be able to have that discussion afterwards with someone was awesome, especially someone like Megan. Just in case you're not familiar, Megan McSherry is a supply chain professional and the sustainable fashion activist and educator behind the account Activism, A-C-T-E-E-I-V-S-M. Starting out as a fashion blogger in 2012, Megan has documented her slow fashion journey on her blog and social media platforms. She now discusses sustainable fashion and practical low-waste living for her 75k plus followers on TikTok and 19k plus followers on Instagram. She has her master's of science in global supply chain management from the University of Southern California and has worked in the supply chain departments of two global footwear and apparel brands. All around a really, really incredible background to give that lens of supply chain management and globalization to our conversation around luxury, the accessibility of luxury, the democratization of luxury, as Dana Thomas calls it, all around a really, really fascinating conversation and one that I'm thrilled to have had with her, one that I'm thrilled for you to listen to. If you enjoyed this conversation, let me know. I'm really looking forward to doing more book clubs and I want to be giving you more chatty, innovative content. This episode, like I said, is a little different from the episodes I typically put out, not necessarily in style, but perhaps in conversation flow. And it's nice because it's a way that we can all do something together. We can really participate and read the book together and enjoy it at the end of the month. And the other nice thing about these episodes is that if you choose to read the book at a later date, you can always come back and listen to them. So it's never too late to join Eco Chic Book Club. Next month, we are going to be reading Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot by Mickey Kendall. I am really, really thrilled. This has been on my want to read list for a really long time. And again, it is a nonfiction book. So if you do not read the book with us, you can certainly still participate in the conversation and listen to the episodes afterwards, but you'll get a lot out of it if you do read the book. So let me know what you think of this format. Let me know what you think of book club, if you're enjoying it, if you want to know more of them. If you have any book club recommendations for us, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at Podcast or on Facebook, or via email, which is always in the show notes, on Twitter, on Clubhouse, wherever you want to find me, I'm there. And I'll just jump right into the episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be innovative and creative with this style of episode and with this book club. Like I said, I'm really looking forward to it. I think you're going to enjoy it. It is different. It's community-oriented. It allows us to do something together. And it just feels like a lot of fun, quite frankly. It's an excuse for me to have more chatty conversations with people that I love in this space. And it's a good way for us to explore new reads and check off that New Year's resolution of reading more, reading a book once a month. 
So hope you enjoy it. Thank you so, so much. Can't wait to hear your feedback. And let's get into the episode. Megan, welcome to Eco Chic. I am thrilled to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm equally as thrilled to be on here. (laughs) Thank you. I'm also excited that this is our first proper book club episode, and I'm glad that we got to do it together because you are someone who has such a deep knowledge of supply chains and of fashion and really like the globalization of fashion. So before we start talking about Deluxe, tell me a little bit about your background and where you come from in the fashion space. Yeah, so I decided pretty early on in college that I liked sustainable fashion. And I saw most people in the industry kind of approaching it from a design perspective, but I knew that I didn't really want to design or I also knew I didn't really have the skills to be a designer. So I looked at other ways that I could make more of an impact in the sustainable and ethical fashion space and came across supply chain management. I had no idea what it was at the time, but figured out kind of as time went on that it was kind of everything from sourcing to planning to purchasing products to shipping them to the customer. And to me, that was like a bingo moment. I was like, that's clearly an area where there's so much room for sustainability and not a lot of happening there. So I, after graduating from USC with my undergrad in business administration, I got a master's in supply chain management. And I worked with three different fashion brands, one that was completely zero waste startup from the ground up that completely failed, but was such an interesting experience and two other global brands. Um, And I just think there's so much room for growth in the industry, but sustainable fashion is really my passion. But I, I love operations and thinking about how businesses make decisions, which is why Deluxe was so fascinating for me because I feel like there were so many different parts that were about business decisions kind of hidden under like design decisions. It just was so interesting to see how brands changed and decisions were made and stuff and stuff like that. Yeah, I totally agree. I thought the business decisions throughout the book were really interesting to me because there's this central message of democratizing fashion and democratizing luxury fashion, which I think is It's both like very fascinating to me as a consumer and something I feel like I shouldn't be aware of or participating in. Mm -hmm. And just taking a step back, did you have a lot of exposure to luxury brands growing up? Like, yes and no, I would say. I've never purchased something directly from a luxury brand. And I actually like in high school went to a private school where you had a uniform and you weren't allowed to have like brand logos on anything. So I wasn't seeing it kind of in my day-to-day life, but I was, I loved fashion. I was constantly reading magazines and, you know, seeing some of the like rich moms in my town wearing brand names that I recognized from magazines. So like, yes and no, I was aware of it, but it seemed so far off from something that I could ever wear or own. Um, It definitely, and that's like what I associated luxury with. I was like, it's exclusive. It's something that you like just have to save up for and like can only have in the future when you're like very wealthy and doing really well in your life. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of had the same, I mean, I guess the same experience, not so much 
in my immediate circles, like my family was not a family that participated in luxury brands. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't see it at home, but seeing like the rich moms in my neighborhood growing up, or uh, I'm someone who loves early 2000s nostalgia, like pop culture. Mm-hmm. And so there are certain bags that I always assumed were like the pivotal, like it girl, like when you're 25, like you need to have this Burberry, like <laughs> mini bag. Yes. That's what I think yes. of, or those multicolor Louis Vuitton bags, the white ones with the rainbow logos. Mm-hmm. And also now looking at the book, like I see that so much of how we view celebrities and how we view celebrity fashion is product placement. A lot of it yeah. is product placement. It's like the modern advertisement. And there was this whole narrative in the book about how people like Rachel Zoe and celebrity stylists were really put in place to be this middleman because before celebrity stylists, celebrities are not inherently stylish people. Yeah. And so when you put a middleman in place to like promote these designers and push these bags and what does it mean to have an it bag of the season? And like, just thinking about celebrities as like walking advertisements was also really, really fascinating to me. Yeah. And it was interesting for me to read that too, because so much of I think about that a lot now with influencers. Like there's so much product placement, not so much from luxury brands, but from, you know, middle luxury or like just regular brands. So much of it is product placement. I mean, paparazzi photos of influencers too. Like you you notice the clothes that they're wearing and I'm sure that it is like the influencers have kind of become the new celebrity because still to us, like through social media, celebrities still have that like really far off feeling like air about them like we watch them on tv we could see them on social media but like I'll never be a celebrity (laughs) like my friends will never be celebrities you can kind of connect to influencers more which probably makes you want to buy what they have even more and if it's attainable to you it's just it's it's a business but I would be so fascinated to see if there was like an updated chapter or whatever on influencers in this book because I'm sure that there's lots to be said about that. I completely agree. And when I was thinking about influencers and bags and what it means to be an it bag, going back to that was the Dior saddlebag. I immediately Mm -hmm. thought of that. And I said, because I remember when it was coming out and I felt like everyone on the internet had one of these Dior saddlebags. And I feel like they're kind of ugly, like no offense or anything to them, Mm -hmm. but I feel like it's super impractical because it's like an asymmetrical bag. You can never get a wallet, but I yeah, it's such a weird shape. Or the next one that I was thinking of, and I feel really guilty because I I really want one, is that Prada nylon mini bag 2005 mm-hmm. re-edition. And it got me thinking about nylon. I feel bad. Pay- I don't own a designer bag, but I love to just look at them. But mm-hmm. thinking about a nylon bag being $900 sounds And considered nuts. luxury. And and considered luxury and considered luxury. And why do we pay a premium for things that are, I mean, they could be made by anyone else. They could be low quality. It could be made by any kind of textile, but because it has a Prada logo, I'm thinking it makes sense to pay that kind of money for it. You know, I'm, I'm not, but you know what I mean? It's Uh like the rationale behind, like, why do we pay so much just because it has a brand name? Yeah. And I think there's like two parts to that. First, I feel like a lot of like going back to the celebrity placement, like the it bags, the whole idea of the it bags is for it to be cool. Like you don't have to think that it looks good to have one, but if everybody has one or the coolest celebrities have one, you're going to want one. Like I remember the little mini Celine like square bags 
that was like the first bag that I remember wanting. And I look back at it now and I'm like, I never liked the way that looked. Like, why did I want that? And it was because it looked, seemed like everybody else had it. And then it also goes back to the brand name. And this was something that shocked me in my first supply chain internship where I was asking how much products costed to make and then to see what the upcharge was. And my manager was telling me, you know, we make sunglasses in this factory and the same factory makes sunglasses for Chanel and Prada. And they sell them for like hundreds of dollars more than we sell ours for. And that was shocking to me. That was kind of the first time that I realized that luxury products aren't necessarily made of luxury materials and they're not necessarily like the highest quality product you can buy. It's just like so much of it is the brand name, especially with those like lower market accessories, like the t-shirts and the perfumes even, it's like a huge margin item for those brands. So it's just shocking the power that those logos and the brand name has on like your consumer thoughts and like wanting to feel like you need something. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad you brought a perfume because that was a section that really, really blew my mind thinking about mm-hmm. consumer marketplace decisions. And when they're talking about perfumes as this kind of introductory bit of the brand, it allows the middle market, the department store shopper to feel like they're buying into the dream of owning a luxury product. It never really occurred to me that perfumes are all made in these very generic labs and they're kind of sold off to these luxury companies and you test them out and maybe one recipe gets shown to a bunch of different brands or groups and they license out their name and everything is done by a third party company and the brand, all they really do is put their name on the box and they license out their name Mm -hmm. and that's the end of it. And I never really thought of perfumes that way. I never thought of perfumes as being so, so separate from the actual label that's on the bottle. Yeah. I also was shocked about the whole recipes being like pre-made by the laboratories, just shown to the brands or like smelled, (laughs) sprayed in the air so that the brands could smell them. Because again, when I think of luxury, I think of like making really specific decisions about the design of your product or the smell of the perfume that you want people to associate with your brand. And it was like disappointing to hear that it's just pre-made and they, they pick something that was already made by some person in a lab. Um, so it just goes back to like trying to get luxury out to the masses. Like, is that just taking away from what luxury actually is or does luxury even really exist? Or is it just like a figment of our imagination and advertising, making us think that something is like high quality made for us, but not actually? Yeah, I think about that too now. And I feel like, I feel like the word luxury means different things to different brands. Mm -hmm. And the one that now really, really strikes me is Louis Vuitton. And how in the introductory chapter, Dana Thomas calls Louis Vuitton the McDonald's of luxury fashion because they churn out so many pieces. It's so democratized. Anyone could buy a Louis Vuitton bag, quote unquote. And that gave me so much perspective because I was like, oh, why do we consider this a luxury brand? Mm -hmm. It's made by machines. It's all the same leather. It's all the same design, maybe cut in different ways for different seasons. But what does it mean to be truly luxury? And then you take these Louis Vuitton factories that are just machines, essentially, 
and you're comparing it to something like Birkin and you're thinking about a $10,000 bag that takes someone 24 hours to make and just the incredible difference in the actual production of these bags. I mean, it's reflected in the prices because a Louis Vuitton bag is a fraction of what a Birkin costs. Mm -hmm. But when you're looking at calling them both luxury items, it just doesn't seem fair. Yeah. And also thinking, I was constantly thinking about like supply chain and manufacturing while I was reading about the differences and how things were made, like mass production, like assembly line, just moving something, doing one action, moving something through a sewing machine to put a bag together, or like layering a ton of different bag materials on top of a laser cutter and like cutting out the shape of the bag that you need versus at Hermes having each individual like skin or piece of leather for a bag being looked at, picking only the best one, and then having one person make an entire bag from start to finish. It's like so different, not only in skill level, but like attention to detail. And to me, that's quality. Like regardless of what materials things are made of, like that is like artisanship and like really putting thought into a bag. And even again, looking at like the amount of products that Hermes sells, like they could easily sell way more Birkin bags than they're making. And they have years long waiting lists, but they decide not to because they want to preserve their brand as a luxury brand, or at least that bag as a luxury product. Whereas, yeah, I was also shocked by Louis Vuitton being called the McDonald's of luxury fashion. It's just shocking because to me, it still seems like luxury, but it's it's the logo, it's the brand name, not necessarily the way that it's made. It's just so interesting. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. And the one thing that I felt like was kind of the saving grace detail of Louis Vuitton is that they still make trunks by hand mm-hmm. in this one tiny villa of a factory somewhere in France by, I think it was like 15 or 16 people work there. Yeah. And the trunk was kind of the initial product that Louis Vuitton brought out. Not it, it was, it was because mm-hmm. it was a square trunk and you could fit it on the back of a carriage. And this claim to fame product that people now use as coffee tables or decor, decor. in their homes. Yeah, it doesn't really serve its original purpose, but the people who are buying them new are actually buying a premium product. So it's kind of interesting to think that the one product that, they're kind of still credited with being truly a piece of art is there. I think it was like less than 200 are sold every year. Not that many people make them, not that many people buy them, just the evolution of the brand, not even, I don't want to say the rise and fall, but like the Uh way that they've really rethought what it means to be a luxury brand and giving people this in to something that wasn't really ever intended for the mass market. Yeah. It's, It's interesting. And thinking about what wasn't really intended for the mass market, like now it is. And especially when towards one of the last chapters, they were talking about um, collaborations with fast fashion brands and luxury designers. And I remember seeing some, like I know H&M has a ton of different collaborations with different designers and even Target has had like somebody designer's name by Target or whatever those collections are. And I always saw those as like cool ways cheap, inexpensive ways to get a like designer product. And again, back then I was thinking like designer products, luxury products are higher quality. They're made to last. Like everything is paid attention to every detail. But 
now knowing everything I know about fast fashion and how everything's produced and why it's able to be made at a lower cost, it just feels wrong. <laughs> it's like you're being sold a logo again on just like a cheaper item of clothing. But the whole point there is again, to get the brand name out there. More people are wearing it, but then it's that balance. Like you don't want everybody wearing your luxury logo name because then it's not luxury anymore. You want to make as much money. And that's what was so shocking to me at the end, just that it's so much of the industry is so focused on the bottom line instead of design. So getting it out to all the people that it wasn't originally for, but now they're trying to target as that middle market. Yeah, that brings me to think also a lot about inclusivity. And I think I mentioned this to you before we started recording that mm -hmm. this inclusivity problem of luxury brands is so not reflected in the way that they're trying to meet the middle market. And there's a whole bit about Waikiki and how Japanese tourists have made Hawaii this like shopping destination because of duty-free shopping and not having mm -hmm. to pay taxes and all of these um, luxury brands being able to open stores in Waikiki and how profitable they are and everything like that. But because of the type of tourists that's shopping at these stores and the type of people who are buying duty-free items luxury items they only carry up to a size eight I think it was or a size six yeah. or a size eight and then shoes don't go any higher than a seven or an eight in women's shoe sizes and what does it mean to be truly inclusive if you are carrying such small sizes if you're carrying such a small range what does it mean to look at handbags there was a whole bit about handbags and the value of a handbag to a company is that you don't have to worry about sizing. You don't have to worry about age. You don't have to like face all of the problems that the fashion industry as a whole is facing. facing and yeah. what does it mean for a luxury brand to be truly democratized or available to the mass markets if they're still not catering to the same demands that we're asking of all of the other major brands? And I think the part that was so interesting to me about all of that was the difference that brands tried to have between their storefronts and like what products were available in like their flagship stores or their Rodeo Drive store versus like their own owned outlets where they sold products that you know weren't as perfect or or extra sizes like there just was so much attention paid to what kind of inventory how much inventory they wanted to have in their stores and especially in those like high profile areas and I think so much of it is just to create this environment of exclusivity and like only certain people can be part of this luxury world if they fit into the sizes that they have or if they have the money to drop on a bag. So yeah, I mean, they they are trying to like escape those issues that the whole rest of the fashion industry is facing. And um, it's, it was just interesting to see their their kind of thought process behind it, especially saying like bags, you don't have to worry about size. Like who, th who thinks like that? Like bags are an accessory. Yeah. Like it's just, yeah. Yeah. It was just so strange. Yeah. It was really strange. And even thinking about the storefronts and bags and enticing people to come in and drop all this money on something that doesn't really represent what the brand was supposed to represent. There was also a lot of conversation about storefronts and bringing in these architects to rebuild flagship stores, Rodeo Drive stores for $20 million of a remodel. And the fashion brand saying, that's a great investment. We can recoup it in two years. And we know that more people are coming and spending because 
this particular architect redid our building. And thinking about the way a the, the way a bag is displayed in a store, how that's supposed to give the consumer an air of like, I should pay more for this item because of the way that it's presented or because of how exclusive it is to get it. And all of that is a facade. It's all so calculated and, and manipulative. It's kind of, once I started thinking about like storefronts, I think that was like, yeah, that was a whole different level of uh, playing the game that I wasn't expecting. Mm -hmm. I took a fashion merchandising class uh, before college and just thought it was going to be like designing window storefronts and like, you know, choosing the cool clothes that go on the mannequins in the window. But it was so much more about like, where do you place the, like, what do you put by the register? Like, you're going to put like keychains and wallets and like lip balms, like little things that people while they're waiting in line can just pick up and add to their bag so that you sell more. Like everything was so calculated. Like you want backpacks on one part of the store and like other products on in different corners and like the less expensive items way toward the back. So you have to walk by everything else on your way to go see it. So it was just like, everything was so calculated. And I think that's kind of when I started to lose the like, I don't know, I, I like made up this vision of what fashion was like in my mind. It was like, everybody's just designing things because they love how it looks but it's such a calculated business. And I think especially with luxury, it's like so much about image. And again, like making money that they just don't care what they have to do to keep up that front. And it's wild how much thought goes into every single decision. Knowing what you know about how stores are designed and now like the textile process, how do you feel about buying into a luxury brand now as like your own person, a young woman, someone who's aware of supply chain issues, but someone who also likes fashion and always thought this mm -hmm. was like a piece of the dream. How do you feel about like luxury handbags right now? I thought a lot about this while reading the book because I haven't thought about luxury, buying luxury items in a long time. I've always just kind of written it off like they're leather, like they're not sustainable. I'm just like, they're expensive. I'm just not interested. But something that I love about fashion is the story behind an item. I find that's way more often in the sustainable and ethical fashion industry. Like you can see what the factories look like. You can learn about why they chose this specific material for a certain item. And I really connected to the whole story of the Birkin bag and how like it's like the design is so specific to the brand and it's made in this special factory by one person all the way through. And I think there was something like the artisan stamp was like in the bag. So you could like tie it back to who made it, which is just so cool. And like that is like an investment I wouldn't make right now, but I would consider making. Like there's a story behind it. Like that to me is the epitome of fashion. But all of the other things, if you're just going to buy it for the brand name or just like to have the next it bag, that's the kind of fashion that I'm like really trying to consciously move away from because there's so much that goes on behind the scenes in terms of cutting corners to make more money and choosing not as good materials and not being so transparent about where things are made and how things are made that... I just wouldn't be that interested. It, like this story makes a huge difference to me in how a product is made. Yeah. 
I appreciate that. I like that a lot. I had similar and contradictory feelings Mm -hmm. because I feel the same way. I really thought that luxury fashion was something that I could never participate in. And even on the sustainability front, I love to, I'll be honest, I love to look through the Real Real, which Mm -hmm. is a luxury resale site. And it's just so fun to see what people turn in and like what holds value and what doesn't hold value. Mm -hmm. Like I was mentioning those Burberry bags earlier that I always thought as a young kid, I really needed one. They really don't sell for that much compared to what you were originally buying them for. So Burberry seems to not hold nearly as much value as something like a Louis Vuitton bag that does hold value pretty well, surprisingly Mm -hmm. enough. But it got me thinking like, if I was purchasing it on my own, I certainly wouldn't opt for the McDonald's of luxury fashion. Yeah. But there are specific collections that they were mentioning. This is, it took me a little bit longer to get through the book because I was looking up all of these collections, <laughs> thinking about the cherry collection of Louis Vuitton. I believe it was in 2005. They were saying that that cherry collection doubled their sales that year. And it was the first true, like heavily photographed collection specialty item of a luxury brand. And I was like, that's cool. Like I would love a piece of pop culture 2005 fashion history but at the same time I know it's like not nearly worth whatever I'd be paying for it you know I think there's like now this interesting disconnect that I have with like the history of these brands and like how exciting it is that um even thinking about the handbag in general I feel like after I read this book I should have written off handbags altogether and been like I don't believe in the luxury handbag but there's a bit about how handbags really became popular in the 60s during the suffragette movement and women being like, if we don't have pockets, we're just going to deal with it ourselves yeah. and we're going to get hand-. And I was like, I love handbags. I love that. How feminist yeah. of me, you know? <laughs> so I think there's like now this really kind of inner conflict where like, I know so much that I don't know what I believe as, as an individual, as a consumer. Yeah. It's hard. I feel like I, I kind of have that back and forth. Like, of course, I'm like so fascinated by how like the Birkin bag, for example, is made and it's such a thoughtful, like every single piece of the production is thought out. But like, do I need a Birkin bag? No. <laughs> like, do I even like how they look? Not really. It's just, I like am so fascinated by the process and the story. And I love the history of fashion, like learning about how bags came about and handbags became really popular. Like, I love that. But like I I'm having trouble like you are kind of separating what really makes me interested in something and what makes me want to have something I feel like we've always it's like that fashion industry thing that makes you think that because something is trendy and cool like you want to have it not just because like it's something that's interesting to you it's like you you feel like it's cool you have to have it or it's interesting and you have to have it but you can just find something interesting from afar so it's, it's tricky. Yeah. Oh, I thank you for saying that. I think I'm someone who needs to come to better terms with, like, I can find something interesting from afar because I will go into these deep dives of like, if it's a bag, I don't really think that much about designer shoes because I feel like they get scuffed up. That sounds like an awful investment for, yeah. you know, for a middle market person like me. But when I think about, um, bags or if I think about maybe like a wallet something I'm using every single day I could certainly rationalize like I'm going to spend this kind of money on it because I'm going to use it so much but I also know that the upcharge on these items are absolutely ridiculous and I think there was also a bit about I don't remember what brand it was but they were saying that 
um, Dana Thomas was saying that she visited the factory and saw that they were being like this particular item was being sold for $120. And then she went into town and it was being sold for $1,200. And what are consumers willing to pay a premium for? And how do you kind of get duped? And what we've been saying this whole time, we are absolutely being played by the luxury fashion brands. We're being played by the whole industry and rationalizing those purchases in our head to say it has a good story or it's high quality because it's a luxury brand is us continuing to feed into this cycle of thinking we need more and thinking that if we're consuming a certain way, we become a certain type of person. And I was on a side note, reading something recently about why we buy certain things. It was actually in the book, Sustainable Minimalism, if you Mm -hmm. haven't read that yet, but by Stephanie Safarian. And she was saying that the reason that you feel like you need to buy certain things is because you think buying those things will make you a certain person. And I think the example was like something like a kitchen appliance, like me buying a KitchenAid mixer doesn't actually make me a wonderful baker. But I think that because I have it, I'm now suddenly like a really good homemaker or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And so when we're thinking about fashion, it's like, why do I feel the pressure to buy a certain bag or buy, I always give the example of like short white booties. I've wanted them all quarantine. I'm not going anywhere. So I don't need new shoes, Mm -hmm. but this pressure of like buying something new because it's going to make me a certain type of person is also really, really hard to detach yourself from. Yeah. And I think that's what made the whole chapter about counterfeit so interesting to me and the huge demand for counterfeit products. I mean, I, my freshman year of business school, traveled to China with my class to learn about international business. And we went to those markets where they sell the bags that look like kind of like knockoffs, but also like could be close enough to the real product. And yeah, I bought two fake Michael Kors bags for me and my friend matching. And then a Michael Kors bag for my mom that she could carry around as her purse because she used to get hers at Costco. And like, it wasn't because I liked how the bag looked, but I was like, I can get a bag that looks just like this designer for like 20 bucks. That would be hundreds of dollars in the store. And who wouldn't want to like feel that way? And it it was just such a like overwhelming experience walking through all of these levels and levels and levels of these malls that were just completely knockoff designer items. And everybody was coming after you, trying to give you the best deal and negotiate and give you more items than you really needed. Um, But the whole, like everybody who was on that trip with me, my whole class that freshman year bought something because it was like a little piece of luxury that we were able to have that we could buy like with our freshman year of college money, you know, like free money to spend. So it was just so interesting. But then I brought the bag home to my mom and she was like, oh, I don't know if I want to use this. Like, it's just so pretty. Like she was like overwhelmed by the fact that it was, you know, a a brand name bag, even if it wasn't made to the same quality or if there's something wrong with it. um, She was like, not so comfortable using a kind of designer bag as her everyday bag. So it's just interesting, like the way that we, we feel like we will gain something by having those kind of products. But then at the same time, if we invest in it, we're like scared to wear it or scared to use it because it feels like it's just so special. It like has to be protected. It's just so interesting. There's There were so many thoughts I had about the whole counterfeit section. 
Yeah. Well, I want to ask you on the topic of counterfeit items, especially since you have this background and like formal education in, I mean, quote, black markets. I always think that's such like an intimidating term Mm -hmm. when I think black markets, I think of like people selling pythons and, (laughs) um, you know, like organs on the internet. But when we're talking about counterfeit items, I think there's like an interesting economic case to make too. Is it wrong to support counterfeit items because you're taking something away from these luxury labels or is it good because you're supporting these small individual people just trying to make a dollar? Like what's, what's the right thing to do? And I've struggled with that because I mean, I live in New York and I've been to Chinatown before and there's, you know, all of those places, like, do you want to see a, this designer bag, like come to the back and I'll show you like all of the nice bags. So it's something I like grew up kind of thinking about, but I feel like it's tough because like, I don't kind of want to support either one, (laughs) you know, like I, I respect the idea of intellectual property and like, obviously the best case scenario is that designs wouldn't be stolen and you could just support the company that like created that design, but they're like multi-billion dollar companies that are charging huge profits for their bags just because of the logos that are on it. And if you want that, but you don't want to pay that price or you don't want to support those people, there are alternatives. But at the same time, like those bags aren't guaranteed to be produced using good materials or produced ethically. I think they talked about child labor in this part, which is just scary to think about. Like you have no idea where the product is coming from. So like, which one is better? It's like the lesser of two evils kind of. I mean. I don't know. I I struggle with that. I do. But I think it comes down to like personal thoughts. The other thing is like selling counterfeit goods is illegal, but like not really illegal. Like it's hard to punish people for selling counterfeit items unless they're like the ones actually buying it or like shipping it on the cargo ships and like getting it through customs. They were saying they like arrest people on Santee Alley in Los Angeles and then they're back like four days later selling in their same booth and they know what they're risking but there's huge reward in selling counterfeit items so it's just tricky I think they said something in the book like the only way to stop counterfeit is to get people to stop shopping like there's no way to stop it otherwise so of course I don't want to like encourage that I don't know clearly I have mixed thoughts but it's just so complicated it's one of those like classic fashion industry like is there really a better option? Everything is so nuanced and there's so much that is just so secretive. I feel like if things were just more transparent, it would, it should be clear to make a better decision, but I don't know. I did not have nearly as much thought around counterfeit items. So I'm glad that you shared that. I kind of read the section and I sat with it and I said, this is strange. And then I kind of moved on and I didn't want to think that much about it because there is this huge moral component of like, yeah, maybe it's, no, it's capitalism. Maybe the problem is that we're buying these brands to begin with, or that we're buying anything to begin with, or that we mm-hmm. feel like we need a new handbag, whether it's designer or not. Or, I mean, even just thinking again about this middle market consumer, why is it that we go into like a Target or a TJ Maxx just to browse without a shopping yeah. list? Like, why do we feel that way? And the psychology of shopping is like, I mean, that's a whole different can of worms to open up. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I feel like there's no right answer to any of these questions, which is kind of frustrating. Yeah. And that, I think that's the hard part about fashion. Like there's, there's so much nuance to every single issue that you can come upon that like, 
how are you supposed to make decision? And I feel like that's so much of what fashion and especially more sustainable and ethical fashion comes down to in my mind is your personal beliefs. Like I don't shop counterfeit items anymore because I just feel like there's too much unknown and it makes me uncomfortable. And I'd rather know where something something is coming from and like the company that's behind it and all the people that are behind it. But that's a personal belief. And I also just choose not to buy the luxury items that I would buy counterfeit items of because I don't have that same pull to like be part of the luxury universe, but some people do. And maybe that's really important to them for whatever reason. And so there's so much that comes down to like personal values, like choosing animal leather or not, whether you're vegan or not, like there are pros and cons to kind of so many things. So it just comes down to personal beliefs and your, your priorities, which is so different for everybody. That was a very powerful statement. I have to say, (laughs) I feel like for me, when I was reflecting on this book and what I learned from it, I think that it left me with that same, like very controversial, like conflicting feeling of, do I want to buy something? Because now I can see the creative directors behind it and how, because Mark Jacobs was the, you know, assistant to this person then broke off to be his own brand and like the kind of intricacies of the fashion industry. It gave me such an interesting, I don't know if it's so much appreciation, but it gave me a different level of understanding to say that all of these people work in the same circles. They all know each other. All of these brands are competing, but they're also kind of friendly. And all of the textiles are owned by the same people. And even when we're looking at these big conglomerates like LVMH, they own so many brands that are able to use all of the same textiles. They can Mm -hmm. both buy them. Or you see all of these brands lined up next to each other in shopping malls because they buy really large spaces at a time. And what does it mean for fashion to be so packaged and and even being owned by a conglomerate to me is like really strange to think yeah. about a fashion company that way. They're all producing the same things, but they're not competing, but they're kind of competing. And I think I was just left with a lot of questions about like what my moral implications are in this case. And I think that I'm one of those people that has an affinity towards luxury items because it was always so coveted to me. It's not mm-hmm. something that I actively buy. I don't buy luxury items. Like I'm making myself out to sound like I'm like, so. <laughs> I, I don't buy luxury items. Yeah. But I mean, like I would, I would love to be able to say like, yeah, let's, let's get a Birkin bag. Like put me on that wait list. And in three years, mm-hmm. here's $15,000 and I will give you my custom order. Um, but I, I also can't imagine making that kind of rational decision. $15,000 sounds like Yes, it's a piece of art, but it's also $15,000 that I could do a lot of other things with. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think there's just so I'm I'm left with so many questions on an ind- individual level. I'll probably still feel fine if I want to buy those middle market items like a perfume. Like a perfume mm-hmm. to me it's like it doesn't really have brand implications if it's really just licensing. But, you know, I I don't know. I mean, I'd rather buy a perfume than a body spray. Like there's, there's certain things that I'm going to be okay with, I think moving forward, but there's certain things that I'm always going to really check myself when I'm finding myself lusting over them. Yeah, I agree. I feel like this book kind of moved my like thought process about the whole fashion industry forward, but also kind of backward. Like, I don't know. I've, I've always just thought of fashion as this like incredible thing where like people are just designing what they think is beautiful and are just putting out their designs out there but it's such a calculated industry and I've said this before while we were talking like it's just 
there's so many thought processes behind it and these public companies, these conglomerates, like you answer to the shareholders at the end of the day. And are they really designing because they think something is cool or are they designing things now because they think it'll sell? And so it, it loses that like specialty or it's not as exciting as like, like a Birkin bag is, I mean, I'm not gonna buy a Birkin bag again, but like, it's so specifically crafted like that to me is fashion but what what else what is everything else like it's just stuff so it it like leaves me sitting with like a weird feeling because I love fashion my whole life I've like known that I want to work in fashion and I like care about it so much and I think about it all the time but like what does what is fashion like this whole book I was like what is luxury but in the end I was like what is fashion? I mean, like, what? <laughs> it was a very philosophical experience for me, but really, I mean, I'm, I'm left with more questions than answers. It's just, it's always interesting to have those like moments that kind of pull you out of the like, like pull you back into reality. Like I was in my little fashion bubble, like this is such an exciting place and it's beautiful, but no, it's just, it's so calculated. Oh my God. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. And I'm actually so glad that you said that and kind of validated my experience because I did really like this book, but I also wish that I had been left with more of a conclusion for myself, for my own sake, Mm -hmm. as a consumer, as someone who appreciates fashion, as someone who's like clearly easily duped by things that I see on the internet and definitely susceptible to the it bag of the season. I just... I don't know. I liked this book and I would recommend it to anyone who likes fashion or is interested in supply chains or is interested Mm -hmm. in the history behind these brands. That was another really fascinating thing to think about. Like, I mean, even just fun facts like Coco Chanel, Coco wasn't her real name and she was a singer and they called her Coco. Like, I love that so much. Or thinking about Chanel number five, talking about perfume as being the first real perfume that was like a mixed smell. It wasn't purely orange or purely Jasmine. Mm -hmm. And when I think of Chanel number five, I think of like my grandmother, I think of like an old woman scent, Mm -hmm. but there's a reason that it's so popular and there's a reason that it's so historic. And it, it gave me a deeper level of of appreciation for things that I already assume to be mainstakes in the fashion industry, Mm -hmm. luxury or otherwise. But I don't know. I, I still don't know where I stand on any of these things now that I know them. I don't know if I should be appreciative or if I should be like, repulsed yeah yeah it's it's tricky and I feel like that's why conversations like this are important because we each could have just read this book on our own and like walked away with like feeling like we should have had some kind of clear takeaway or like just being so confused but knowing that I'm not the only one that's like left kind of feeling more confused or just having so many more thoughts about the industry as a whole than I did when I started reading it makes me feel better, which I feel like it makes everybody feel better to know that there are other people out there that are feeling the same way. But I feel like we are kind of coming to this like time in fashion where people are starting to learn about how the decisions are made and kind of like we're breaking down the walls and the facade of the industry and it's disheartening, but like you still wanna buy into it because it's something you've been so, you've grown up with it. And it's something that you wear clothes every day. Like it's not really something you can just like forget about especially if you like love fashion and grew up loving fashion but yeah I I do feel like 
having this conversation, it's so important to just talk about your thoughts and know that kind of it's okay to have different ideas and different values, especially when it comes to fashion and just that you're going to have a variety of thoughts when you're, when you learn about stuff like this. Agreed. Agreed. And again, I'm glad we're on the same page and like similarly confused. If you had to give this book a rating out of five, what would you rate it? So I already gave it a rating on uh, Goodreads, my little like book. I just keep track of all the books that I read and I think I gave it a four. I do that too. Yeah. I did too. I did too. Because I thought it was fascinating and I loved learning about kind of the history of the brands as you were saying and like the kind of back end of luxury, I feel like you don't hear about that a lot and like manufacturing decisions. But yeah, kind of like you were saying, I feel like it didn't like wrap things up for me. Like I, I like things to be like tied neatly in a bow. I like to have like, here's what you should think. Like in conclusion, here is luxury and here are the problems or here's what you should think. And it's just not like that. It's, it's such a personal thing and it's confusing and I don't know, but I loved the reading experience. And I feel like there's such good information in there, especially from the supply chain perspective. I was like, wow, I feel like I understand what they're talking about and like mass production. And like, this is so interesting. So I loved reading it, but I feel like like I, I was left kind of wanting something more and that maybe that's just like the personal reflection I need to have about what I value as a consumer, but yeah. So a four, four stars. Okay. I gave it also four stars because I felt the same way. Again, I wanted a conclusion and I wanted not necessarily like actionable steps. I didn't need the author to tell me what to do or how to feel, but I think that's also kind of a product of it being a pretty unbiased book, I think. She did so much research and clearly did all of the tours and every single piece of fashion history that Dana Thomas could get her hands on. She clearly did. And I think that because it was a pretty unbiased account from my perspective, that's why I'm left so confused. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's good for me, you know, like maybe it's good that I'm not only reading things from people that I agree with and not to say that she doesn't agree with me or agree with us, but her opinion just isn't clear. Yeah. Her opinion just isn't clear at the end, which I guess, I guess is good, but I don't know. I need some clear opinions. I need some direction and overall, you know, thank you for joining me, Megan. This has been a treat because (laughs) I think if I had read this on my own, I would have been just left very muddy. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, I'm glad we had the chance to chat about this. And I'm curious to see what people think when they listen to the podcast. I'm, I'm sure everybody has their own take on it. And that's always interesting too. Agreed, agreed. I can't wait to hear what people think. And again, thank you so much for your willingness to just read a book and have a conversation about it because this has been a dream of mine for a really long time. I want to read more books and I'm getting into a pretty good habit, like I was saying, of using books as a way to kind of turn myself off and away Mm -hmm. from away from the world but this has been a great experience because I feel like I'm learning but still participating in something that I really really enjoy so yeah thank you I loved it too yes thank you 
Thanks so much for tuning in to our very first book club, Deluxe by Dana Thomas, and we chatted with Megan McSherry of Activism. Megan will be tagged in the show notes, and she will also be on all of my promotional little things on Instagram, on Facebook, on all of the social media platforms where I share more supplemental content to these episodes. I hope you really enjoyed it. I hope you liked the style of it. And I hope you had fun. Honestly, I had a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this, and I'm looking forward to reading Hood Feminism with y'all next month. I haven't 100% confirmed our guest for next month, but I will be announcing that on social media and on our next episode together. So keep an ear out for that. And otherwise, if you enjoyed this show, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure that you rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can follow me on Spotify, Eco Chic, and wherever you listen to podcasts, there I am. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And I can't wait to hear what you think. Honestly, this has been so much fun for me. I feel like I've been gushing this intro and outro about how excited I am about this kind of episode. And I think Book Club is going to be an awesome addition to our monthly rotation. So look forward to hearing your thoughts, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.